0: Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, here with Professor Akil Amar. Hi, Akil. Good morning, Andy. And happy Thanksgiving. We're recording this on the cusp of, the, of that holiday. And wow. uh, happy Thanksgiving yeah. to our yeah. audience also.
1: And in fact, Andy, with any luck, I'm going to get to see you on Thanksgiving Day. And um, uh, since uh, we're having a, a family powwow um, in your neighborhood, um, uh, just... Uh, proverbially down the street from you i've got a, a cousin who who lives really
0: right around the corner from you i look forward to it so um you know in recent weeks we've done some uh sort of contemporary or issue-oriented podcasts talking about first the uh, texas case and then more recently um the new york state uh, rifle association versus bruin case on gun gun control And And by uh, Texas, of course, you mean the the
1: abortion um, um, issue um, in Texas and and the particularly um, um, uh, intriguing law that Texas adopted to make it difficult to challenge um, the the, the Texas statute before it basically went into operation.
0: That's right. And, you know, we're trying to be um, cognizant and responsive uh, uh, with respect to our audience. And uh, judging from... The ratings of our podcast, the, you, our audience, have responded very enthusiastically to these um, issue-oriented podcasts. And I think that uh, in terms of identifying, you know, why that might be the case, I think it's a very good vehicle um, for what this podcast does, teaching a little bit about constitutional law Um and looking at it through the lenses of these cases. So we're going to try to continue to do that. The other thing that we've noticed is that there's been an upswing on the questions that you've asked on the uh, website. That's Uh and actually the specific page is akilomar.com slash podcast hyphen two. But it's easy enough to navigate to the podcast page from anywhere on Professor Moore's website. Now, many of you listen to the podcast through Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, Spotify, etc., and that's fine. However you can get it is great. That's why we put it up on all these platforms. But I do want to emphasize that on the website itself, uh, there are supplemental materials every week, the so-called show notes, um, which are a combination of cases, articles, pictures, in some cases, film clips, music, you know, and so forth that are are relevant uh, to the discussion of the week. So it's quite enriching. And, of course, you can consult it even if you don't get the podcast from that source. But another thing that's on that page uh, are questions that are posed by our audience. And we encourage you to post questions there. And uh, next week uh, or next episode, like, so depending on whether we finish our topic for this week in this episode, when we do, when we do that, we're going to have a, uh, a Prime Minister's Questions uh, session where, we, uh, where Professor Moore will take on some of the, uh, the questions from that website. And also I've noticed that some people have been posting questions in comments on Apple Podcasts. And so we'll, uh, we'll look at those as well. And uh, we'll pull some out and and try to uh, answer them for you. I noticed that some of them had to do with the uh, gun case uh, from the last couple of weeks. And, of course, this week there were developments in the news regarding the verdict in the Wisconsin case of uh, the teenager that uh, um, killed some people um, with a firearm. Kyle Rittenhouse and (laughs) alas. Even more
1: recently, in the news, um, in the same neck of the woods, proverbially in Wisconsin, um, someone who's alleged to have killed five people and injured more than forty others um, with a car, an SUV, and and our audience may remember that I actually said cars are dead can be deadly in the way that guns can be. And we should actually try to think about licensing guns on the model of licensing cars, which is not, as New York did, um, asking, why do you want it? You know, you have to convince us that that you have a particularly good reason, but rather, do you know how to use it? Are you um, um, a safe um, uh, user of it? Um, And and that's a different kind of licensing model than what New York um, uh, chose to 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 do and and my hunch as we talked about in our previous episode is the supreme court um will probably strike down the, the new york approach
0: the other thing that was somewhat prescient in terms of our discussion was um we were talking about balancing of rights in terms of the right of people to remain safe in the public sphere and so forth and uh you know i mentioned the the rise in or the change in definition of self-defense and these cases having to do with self-defense laws, stand your ground Mm -hmm. laws, and so forth, does that change the balance? And does that mean that the court should uh, take a different sort of look at this? And we didn't really go very deep on that, but that seems to be a a cogent question that we might explore further, you know, down the road, or perhaps the court might explore further down the road. Um, And and let me,
1: let me put in just one other, um, a plug, um, for the Lipka. Clan. Uh, Andy is wearing his uh, Harvard Law School um, sweatshirt today. He's come back from some uh, 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 quality time um, with his son, Matthew, whom I was lucky to have as a Yale College undergrad, but who then um, went off to Harvard um, for law school. Um, um, Matthew is actually um, a, a lawyer for a company that tries to think about making safe cars. Self-driving cars that are actually avoid collisions There that's built into the the, the software um, uh, of of these uh, self-driving uh, vehicles. Um, there are similar um, uh, developments with um, certain kinds of safe guns. Guns, for example, that can only um, be used by the owner and can never be taken away from the owner um, by a bad guy. Um, um, There's all sorts of very interesting gun technology um, that is not altogether different, actually, Andy, from some car technology.
0: Actually, also the question of autonomous vehicles, self-driving cars, which my son is involved with, uh, as you mentioned, actually leads us Uh, into in in one way into our topic for today so we were um, thinking about what sort of cases we might discuss and of course earlier we mentioned the the Texas law which which purports to regulate abortions and that uh, the Mississippi case is coming up which uh, also is going to look at a Mississippi law which if uh upheld might have an impact on roe versus wade and the question of the weight that's that should be given to precedent the supreme court's earlier um rulings um on this topic is is an interesting topic and so we thought we would do an episode on uh how you can think about precedent sort of a primer on precedent and now how does this relate to self-driving cars well, now I, I was wondering that I, I I knew we were going to talk about precedent, right. but
1: but I had no idea, Andy, it, it connected to Matthew and self-driving cars.
0: Well, it's this is not so much a question of judicial precedent as legislative precedent. So that um, you know there are laws on the books that regulate cars, and they say, for example, you should have an airbag, or you should have mm-hmm. a window, you know, or you should have a windshield wiper, or you should have a mirror. And so forth. Well, the uh, the car that uh, Matthew's company Neuro makes is uh, a delivery vehicle. So there's no driver, like most autonomous vehicles, but there's also no passenger. So it's not there's no place for a human being in the car. Um, so the therefore you don't need an airbag, you don't need a mirror, you don't need a windshield or a window, and all these things add weight and complexity to the car but you're required to have them because the law of the law. So, um, you know, they're, they're, if you will, weighed down by these, these legislative precedents. And so how might they deal with that? Well, you could pass a new law or you could modify the existing law or you could reinterpret the existing law. So these are, are, are different ways of thinking about how one might deal with and, you know, sort of, uh, inconvenient law that's on the book. So, now this yes. is not the same as court precedent, but some of the same issues, you know, can oh, can arise.
1: Oh, as we're going to talk about, um, it might be almost the same if because um, uh, you said um, use the phrase legislative precedent. You could have meant one of two things: one, the statute. Okay, there's a statute Are you calling that legislative precedent, and the statute is really clear and explicit. Okay, and and it's about cars that. Um, uh, in the uh 1.0 which the legislature imagined would have human beings in it and need all sorts of um, weight and and and, and safety uh, um weight actually protects the, the 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 occupant and and airbags and all sorts of other things protect the occupant but if the statute is really clear okay then maybe you're just going to need a new statute but suppose the statute wasn't so clear but it had been interpreted in various ways by courts can the courts ever just in effect modify their earlier interpretations which are called statutory presence so we're going to get into to, to all of that um, and um, would it ever be permissible for a very adventurous or creative judge a willful judge a critic might say to say actually the statute's is utterly clear but we're going to actually say cars must have the following features um, uh, windshield wipers and seat belts and airbags and a certain, you know, weight. we're just going to call this thing, not a car. Okay. Within the meaning of the statute. So yes, the statute continues to apply. Oh, but it doesn't apply to, to Matthew's company because they, th- those aren't cars. Those are, those are schmars. Those are <laughs> um,
0: delivery vehicles. Those are carts. Those are carriages, you know, w- whatever. Yeah. In fact, and then if, if that, took hold if the public kind of accepted that and it was workable then you could see in a scenario under which the legislature encodes that and and passes a a, another statute that says here's a new definition here's a new class of vehicles you know the schmars and and here's what you know characterizes them and here's how they're regulated and in fact that's exactly what my son's job is he's the head of policy um for neuro and he um in the in the short term looks to have exemptions from the existing law but in the long term hopes to have a new class of vehicles that is that is more appropriately defined um for for these this new generous so of the facts on the ground literally in this case you know have changed mm-hmm. and and that can cause a change in, in the law now when we and when we're going to talk um, about how that's also true if
1: we just focus on um Court rulings, um, aka precedent. So, so that's what we're going to talk about in this um, episode, Um, and and we'll see how far we go. You know, as as is often the case, we end up uh, needing two two episodes to really um, cover the the issues. But yes, what we're offering today, um, uh, 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 audience members, is a primer on precedent uh, with a particular eye toward. Um, the Mississippi abortion case that's going to be um, before the court very soon, um, which in which much of the conversation will be about a precedent called Roe versus Wade and um, and uh, other precedents in the line of cases that, that Roe spawned.
0: Okay, so then, uh, and this is somewhat similar to how we looked at the gun case. At first, we talked about rights and the question of uh, enumerated rights and unenumerated rights and incorporation of rights and so forth. So there was some constitutional theory that we needed to uh, embrace before we could look at the specific case. And so that's the way we're going to approach this as well. So um, are there different kinds of precedent? How do we think about precedent?
1: Yes. Um, There are many distinctions that need to be made. We've already hinted at some of them.
0: Let's first
1: talk about um, three big categories of precedence. Um, precedence about um, what I'm going to call sometimes case law or judge-made law or common law. That's one category. Precedence about statutes and administrative regulations. That's another uh, like like glossing the, the the automobile statute that Congress has passed or in, interpreting it um, in, in court in cases. And um, so that's the second category. First is um, uh, case law, common law, judge made law, and I'll explain what that means a little bit more in just a moment. Second category is administrative regulations and statutes that generate judicial interpretations of them, precedents about statutes and regulations. And third, what our audiences may be most interested in. Um, constitutional precedents, uh, cases interpreting and implementing and um, uh, uh, defining the meaning of various constitutional provisions. So those—that's the first distinction I, I want to make. Or actually, you know, a tripartite distinction. Um, now, let's, let's look at each one in isolation. Um, our audience—I'm sure most of them have probably heard the phrase "common law" or the phrase case law. Sometimes they've heard of judge-made law or judge fashion. law. What does that mean? Here's what it means. That going back to courts of England um, for um, centuries, um, certain legal issues have been decided when there's no statute anywhere in the neighborhood. Um, and they're decided by judges um, coming up with um, reasons why in a civil suit the plaintiff wins or the defendant wins. Uh, let's say it's a it's a, a tort case, um, a, a, a libel um, case, an, ass, uh, an assault case where the defendant, um, where the plaintiff says, you know, the defendant um, punched me in the nose. Um, it's not not a criminal case yet, just civil cases. Um, a contract dispute. Um, And for um, centuries on um, the civil side of the docket, courts would say plaintiff wins or defendant wins, and they give reasons why, and there's not a statute um, in the neighborhood. Um, um, And so what were their um, uh, decisions based on? Custom. Um, tradition, common sense, um, what would make sense going forward. The legislature back um, in jolly old England didn't pass um, as many statutes as legislatures often do um, today. So courts resolved disputes between private persons, man and man. It's sometimes said this is sometimes called private law between two individuals by um, coming up with reasons which, uh, over the course of, of many different decisions, accreted into rules of thumb. Um, here's um, what counts as a libel. Um, and then they, um, here are the, basically the elements of a libel, of, a, of an assault, of a trespass. Um, of, um, um, and these are all sorts of common law categories, detinue detonu, trover, replevin, um, a sumset, a breach of contract, um, and all, um, and, and the like, and judges are coming up with their own reasons and rationales, and gradually modifying them. That's on the civil side. Believe it or not, the um, courts in England um, did the same thing on the criminal side. There, um, not every uh, instance of of criminal liability and punishment was um, undergirded by a statute. Courts on their own put people in prison, convicted them of crimes, and the courts themselves were actually generating the definition of of the criminal conduct. And and again, if you're a hard-boiled, what's called legal realist, you say courts are making up the law. If you're a more legal tradition, you say, oh, no, they're finding the law. They're fashioning the law. They're not making it up as a purely legislative um, matter of policy going forward, the way a statute would just say, henceforth, here are the rules. They're actually interpreting um, pre-existing customs and traditions um, that, that, that already define um the 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 community that they um uh, in in which they are sitting so um they're they're not uh, making murder wrong uh, a crime they're recognizing that the community itself sees murder as wrong as and this is a latin phrase malum in se wrong in and of itself murder rape arson it's not just the judges who think these are wrong the society thinks they're wrong but there's not a statute around you see so courts actually have to define well what do we mean by murder what do we mean by arson here's the common law definition of arson for example it may surprise some of our audience who aren't law trained at common law arson is setting fire to a dwelling place at night that's the common law definition of arson and their common law definitions of burglary and larceny uh, and murder. And then as further cases come to uh, the court, they actually sometimes need to qualify and, and modify that. Okay. Um, um, well, th- this was an intentional taking of life. Let's even imagine with premeditation, um, but it was a self-defense situation. You talked about the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict or something. Are we going to recognize certain defenses to Um, presumptive criminality a defense of self what if it was not self-defense but defense of others you saw um, a was about to kill b and good samaritan c leaps in a protecting victim b but does so um in a manner that committed an assault or a battery a, a uh, against um, the assailant A. Okay, that's not self-defense. This is the Good Samaritan Sea leaping in. That's defense of others. Oh, I set fire to a dwelling place at night, but the reason I did it is actually to create a fire break because there was a there was a fire advancing and if I set fire to this abandoned house I would protect the neighborhood beyond that house because the, the dwelling the, the the fire that I set was a fire break. I'm actually a firefighter I am actually was was i um, hired by the the town to to protect it okay so that's, this is this welcome to the common law, in which there are all sorts of um, complex fact patterns, and judges are extending some cases and, and limiting others using um, what's a, a common law reasoning.
0: Does the common law also extend to procedure? So in other words, um, to due process and things like that? Um, so again imagine that the
1: legislature um, hasn't passed a statute so some of the court rulings might be about how the court operates okay for example so they say ah we um this is a a criminal situation we believe it requires a jury um because um that's the tradition of england that that, that, um, maybe a statute hasn't said so but that's actually how we do things um in england okay but what's a jury? Ah. Um, legislature hasn't passed a, a law about how jurors are summoned, but there are traditions about how they're summoned, okay? So the sheriff has to summon them, and it has to be 12 people. Oh, well, now can you challenge any of them? Suppose one of them is the brother-in-law of, of one of the litigants, okay? Are there challenges for the cause? Should actually um, litigants be allowed, even without specifying a cause, to have a, a at least a few um, what are called peremptory challenges um, um because it sometimes is awkward to say why someone is biased so back in the old days when uh, litigation was very local um instead of actually having to insult um, a prospective juror by identifying possible bias um uh each party was given a, a, a few just dings uh, peremptory challenges um uh, ex- excluding a prospective juror without having to identify why M- must the jury be unanimous um um, um how, how many people on the jury okay it's 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 12 good men and true um uh, tri- by tradition um going all the way back to to jesus's 12 disciples in fact so so um, um what's the burden of proof is it beyond reasonable doubt um yes in a criminal case but what about in the civil case maybe by a mere preponderance of the evidence these are all procedural issues let me just identify a couple more and then i know you want to jump in um um'm um, um, who counts as a um, who's a valid witness? Um, must um, the person be an eyewitness? Um, is it um, permissible testimony if Amar says, "Well, I actually didn't see this, but Andy did, and he told me blah blah blah"? Or is that improper hearsay? Are there exceptions? To um, what's otherwise improper hearsay. Those are all. Those are just a handful of procedural issues. How are witnesses summoned? Um, um, does the defendant have a right to summon witnesses um, uh, in in and um, his defense? Um, when must the trial occur? How speedy um, must it be? Must it be um, in public? All sorts of procedural issues. No. Um, um. And let me just finally just identify what we might think of as procedural versus substantive which is a big distinction the law has many implications it's used in different contexts with slightly different uh, functional definitions but for this purpose substantive law is the relationship between human beings in the real world between man and man you know if you punch me in the nose you know that's um, a, a, a tort unless you and but maybe you have a good reason for it because i punched you first or something and, and it was self-defense so the relations between human beings, man and man, um, in the, the, let's call it the real world, or between uh, people and government, um, between people and government that's sometimes called public law, between individuals that's sometimes called private law, um, um, but, but that's how we actually interact. We, if we're, um, uh, we have to avoid harming each other that's the law of torts and, and of, of crime we can't kill each other we can't you know bop each other in the nose without good reason but we also want to cooperate with each other that's the the law of contracts and property who owns what can you sell it to someone else if someone actually values it more than you do um, how do we make contracts together so that you want you know how do we barter and and, and do other things that actually work to our cooperation that's substantive law. Um, in the real world between governments and individuals and between um, private persons. What's procedural law? Um, we're going to set up in effect a, a legal system to enforce substantive law. And procedural law is often the rules about the legal system itself. Who picks the judges and who picks the juror and, and how does the courtroom work? You might think of procedural law in part as a special law governing not so much the real world, um, but the somewhat artificial legal world of the courtroom itself.
0: So, in, in terms of the common law, um, it sounds like the common law descends from tradition, is what you're saying. So, that sounds a lot like privileges and immunities. That we were talking about, you know, in the last episode, um, in the sense that uh, you know that evolves at the federal level from state constitutions or state laws and so forth. Um, does common law, in this sense, evolve further? Does, in other words, does it go from tradition to common law to statute to constitution to privilege and immunity, or or does it stop at the common law? Does it have to be encoded? Um, what kind of what's the natural history of Yes, well, uh, very often, and now we're going we're moving into a, a separate a second
1: category. Um, some statutes or constitutional provisions just announce new rules, going uh, ideally going forward prospectively, but sometimes statutes um, or constitutions codify um, earlier judicial decisions. So, um, and, and you'll see words used in a statute or in a constitution. That are basically building on earlier cases. Uh, a statute might use a word like arson, which courts have actually uh, pre-existingly defined. And unless the statute says otherwise, the statute, in effect, is incorporating or adopting um, the um, common law definition of setting fire to a dwelling place at night. Or maybe um, the statute modifies the word arson, saying actually henceforth. Arson's is going to mean setting fire to, to any building um, or um, a building or vehicle, you know, setting fire to a cart um, or to a wagon or something like that. So the statute could simply codify the common law or go beyond it. So might a constitutional provision. Constitution, for example, refers to habeas corpus. Now, habeas corpus had pre-existingly um, been um, uh, uh, a product of, of judicial uh, case law. Um, there were also important statutes codifying in England judicial case law. Very famous statute is the Habeas Corpus Act of seven, uh, 1679. Um, now, I've just given you the traditionalist account of case law, common law, judge fashion law, which is that judges are really um, looking to a great extent backward and trying to articulate the norms, the pre existing norms and customs and usages and practices of the community. That's a traditionalist way of thinking about um, common law. The more modern way, the legal realist way, is oh no, judges are making law prospectively. They're trying to regulate the future and they're not so different from legislatures in that regard. And um, it's not just about custom, what the custom has been, but what the rules should be going forward. And it's Permissible sometimes for judges to just consider very openly policy considerations and even to introduce um, some um, um, breaks in existing um, expectations. Maybe a legislature can introduce a bit bigger breaks and act purely prospectively. See, judges in theory are not so much prescribing merely prescribing rules for the future but adjudicating things that have already happened in the past and so they have um, but in fact because of precedent the rule that you announce today that you claim if you're a traditionalist is rude in the past will also at least presumptively be the rule that governs future conduct because a future court will follow your precedent unless there's a very good reason to deviate from it and so the traditionalist account of of judge made law is they're looking to the past they're articulating rules substantive and procedural criminal and civil Um, but in the course of doing that they're also in effect laying down markers that are um, will tell people in the future how they need to behave
0: now, you say that the, this legal realist view, um, where they're laying down rules that aren't necessarily based on precedent, but that are have, have policy um, implications and so forth, that that's a so-called modern view. Does that mean that it has displaced the previous view, that it's now considered the correct view, or, or it's just that this is something that some people are doing and there's a controversy as to which is uh, the correct approach?
1: yeah there are legal traditionalists and there are um more avowed legal realists here's what i do want to um say in the domain of judge made judge fashioned common law case law um uh, whatever you call it um there's arguably a greater um ability of judges to um to change precedents. um uh, to modify it because the, what they're modifying are things that the judges themselves um, earlier came up with. And, and so there's not as much of an of a, um, anti-majoritarian, anti-democratic critique of um, uh, uh, the court in, in this domain. Um, thus far, the legislature isn't in the picture. And so we're not um, talking about courts against legislatures. Um, we're talking about today's court, um, these are the yesterday's court and thinking about tomorrow's court.
0: We were talking about our audience keeping in mind the things that we're talking about in terms of considering the upcoming case uh, that's going to look at Roe versus Wade. Right. And this right. this this, would, this particular category of precedent uh, is not really the category that would apply to that case. Exactly. So, and but what's but it is important in this category to note that here is where you have kind of the the maximal ability for judges to depart from precedent because on on a legal on a
1: legal realist view on a traditionalist view oh they should actually be very cautious about this because common law is supposed to be very um, incremental and it's not supposed to introduce big breaks legislatures can do that courts can't so so actually um uh uh, the common law domain has debates about precedent, and I just want to distinguish those debates from Category 2 about legislation and, and uh, administrative regulation, and, oh, then the big enchilada, Category 3, constitutional precedent, which is where a row uh, is going to be located.
0: Right. I'm not saying that, that courts just willy-nilly can disregard precedent in this category without well, any... some people think so. Well, so without any... Uh, well, the legal realists say,
1: you know, judges made it. They didn't fashion it. They didn't find it. They made it. They can remake it.
0: Right. They can. But the question of uh, is whether or not they should. And, the, and Well, a so- traditionalist would say they should
1: go slow. The values of precedent are incrementalism um, and, uh, um, and, and and respect for the past. And the, the legal realists say, no, that's a fuddy-duddy way of looking at it. What we're really doing is not so much regulating the past As um, prescribing rules, not so much interpreting the past as um, prescribing rules for the future.
0: But certainly, anyone would could would recognize that the the public has reliance interests. You know, they behave based on what they're told the law is. Oh. And that
1: reliance um, uh, word is going to be hugely important um, uh, in all our conversations today. Um, and um, and the reliance may be somewhat asymmetric. Let's think back now on um, a, a criminal case. Let's imagine that a court is going to tweak the definition of arson. Um, if it's tweaking it against the defendant, um, oh, Um, For the first time ever, we're going to now say that um, uh, you're an arsonist, even if it's not a dwelling place, or even if it's not at night. And you can say, oh, you know, I I never would have set fire to this thing had I known that, because um, I thought it was okay to do it in the daytime. I thought it was okay to do it to not a dwelling place. And the answer to that might be, um, I relied on that. Um, um, And that would be different than a, a ruling tweaking um, the definition in the defendant's favor. Now, what you could say, even if you're ruling against the defendant, is a nice try, but no. It was not legitimate of you to have any legitimate reliance interest um, uh, that think that you could get away with something that actually was also in say. Yes, the earlier cases said setting fire to a dwelling place at night – but now we realize, actually, that um, it's just as dangerous to set fire to a factory at night or to um, a warehouse or to a barn um, or to a shop. Um, so, um, yes, it's true that the case said dwelling place, but our morality, uh, pre-existingly, we're not making this up. We're actually finding what you know, should have been in your heart and it was in the community's heart always this was always wrong. This was Malam and say, so we're not going to uh, treat as reasonable and, and worthy of ultra strong judicial deference, your reliance interest in that earlier definition.
0: So before we leave the, the question of common law and move to uh, the next category here, I'm interested in exploring for a moment what happens to the common law when we move from Britain to America. Um, and, <laughs> And part of the reasons I'm interested in that are um, these are British citizens, British subjects that are that are moving here. So you would think that the traditions are roughly the same, you know, at least at the beginning. They may evolve based on any number of, of reasons. Um so but you would think there would be some preservation of the common law and some difference. And then we have a constitution and we form essentially a new government. And there's, first of all, a difference between not having a written constitution and having a written constitution. That would seem to have some implications for common law, which, after all, is not written, you know, to begin with, as opposed to statutes that are written. So there might be some analogy there. So can you give us give me a little primer on on the common law as it relates to Britain versus the America?
1: I will. And let me um, just say one other thing about the Reliance question that you asked and um, as i do so just because it was a big a good and big question and i talked about it in the context of criminal law but now let me talk about it in the context of civil law um, so reliance interest might be particularly strong in the commercial world um, in uh, the world of economic uh, transactions because um people basically, um, rely on, um, uh, rulings about whose property this is is it yours or mine and um and how what do i need to do in order to convey my piece of property to you what are the rules of 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 contract if, if people are buying and selling things and um in reliance on the the rules of buying and selling and uh, and owning oh it's it's um uh, particularly problematic to pull the rug out from under them when they're engaging in what we think of as actually um, valuable value-creating um, uh, activity, uh, owning, buying, and selling uh, in, in ways that are, in, in a word, efficient. It's going to be very difficult for the the commercial world to operate if the judges are always um, changing the, the rules willy-nilly on, on, on them and, and up ending their uh, settled expectations about who owns what and, and how do we go about doing proper um, exchanges, voluntary exchanges, free exchanges, um, which in theory make us both better off. Okay. Now America, you're right. America begins as um, British colonies. That's how my new book begins. Um, Act one, scene one is American 1760 and these are um, very loyal and happy British subjects toasting their new King, King George, the third, we have American courts and they're largely they're uh, filled with amateurs. They're not nearly as many law trained folk in America as there are in England, which has a a bigger um, class of of basically aristocrats and noblemen who um, have leisure and and basically become more expert in law. They become justices of the peace and and other things. And you have um, inns of of court and a a more elaborate legal bar and legal system in England. But now America, what's it going to do? It's it's a wilderness. It's a more rude um, land. American British colonists begin by basically following British rules um, uh, as best they can, but they adapt them to local circumstances because um, um, maybe certain rules that um, make sense in in Britain don't make sense given uh, the American wilderness, uh, for example. I'll I'll tell you something that, that happens much later um, in in the story, but it's an illustration of the basic concept that um, uh, that Americans adopt from the beginning, which is basically we're going to apply all the British rules that make sense in America. Um, now, here are some things that they don't think makes sense. Britain, for example, um, has an established church and some of the the, the, uh, uh, Anglican church and some of the Americans are actually dissenters. And when they come to New England, they don't want to apply certain uh, British ecclesiastical rules. So they um, and do they have permission to do that, oh, in some colonies they do. Rhode Island, actually, the crown um, authorizes certain uh, a certain experiment in religious toleration. Um, I'm not sure Massachusetts quite has been completely authorized to do it, but they do it anyway. So they some they simply don't apply some uh, British rules, or they modify them in application. What counts as blasphemy, for example? Blasphemy is a, a common law concept, a British concept, but maybe it doesn't apply. Um, um, the, the, the colonials don't quite uh, apply it. Um, in in the same way, so sociologically they're different, um, and, um, um, but there are also physical differences. Um, this is a um, an example from later in American history. In um, Britain, um, the rules of um, um, Admiralty of ship law. Britain is very much a seafaring nation. It's very proud of its of its navy, and um, that's it's it's, it's great um historic um uh, strength is its, it's it's and pride and joy is its navy both commercially and militarily um it rules britannia r- rules the, the waves pr- proverbially um so but at a certain point ship law ends and land law begins okay that's the border between what's called admiralty and 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 um and other um uh, forms of law but where Okay. Well, Britain has a rule. Admiralty law only extends to um, waters that rise, that are tidal, that rise and flow with the tide. So the ship, when it's at sea, is governed by Admiralty law, but also as it navigates up the Thames, because the Thames actually rises and falls with the tide. Um, And there actually, there's a recent story, our audience might be interested in, about about, um, more um, sharks in the Thames than ever before. Um, uh, j- just read something a couple of weeks ago about sharks in the Thames. Okay, that rule eventually um, about the limits of admiralty was held not to apply in America. Um, in America, the rule is: is the waterway navigable? Now, in England, whether it rose or fell with the tide was a pretty good proxy for a navigable waterways. But in America, given its different geography, it wasn't because we actually have. Um, waterfalls um, in many parts of America, pretty close to the coast and upstream of the first waterfall. It's still a big navigable waterway. And so Americans said, well, the real purpose in England was basically um, the, the key idea was really navigability. Um, um, if it really is a place for ships rather than merely boats. And in England, Tidewater was a good proxy for that, um, but not in America. So we modify English rules to deal with America's unique geography or its unique political and cultural and religious situation. Okay, so um, eventually, some um, after the American Revolution, now actually we're not British colonies anymore. So um, why would British rules continue to apply? Especially, let's imagine, British cases Post-independence, should Americans ever pay attention to a British case decided in 1777 or 1778 on a, quote, common law topic, a case law topic? And one reason you might want that is, you can piggyback on a British system. Um, Maybe if you don't have to follow their ruling slavishly, but often they make sense, um, and you're um, a a kind of a system that's rooted in British law, Uh, do you want to authorize your judges not just to apply English case law pre-1776, but even post 1776 or something well there are statutes adopted in some of the early states they're they're called um a common law reception statutes in which sometimes uh, different states former colonies pass laws saying british um, common law still applies in general except where it makes no sense Something like that. And it's very broad like that, giving judges broad discretion to actually ask themselves, is this the sort of thing where there really isn't any difference between Britain and America and and we're going to apply the British rules or, oh, no, the British have rules um, that we don't want to follow because they're an aristocracy and we're not. So we're going to have different rules of, of, of primogeniture and entail because those rules are all about preserving an aristocracy or, Oh, um, their geography is different on, on, um, uh, tidewater. Oh, their um, um, uh, a, a culture is different. They have an established uh, Anglican church, and 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 we don't um, here in um, Massachusetts. Um, we have actually um, an established Congregational church, or we have no established church um, in 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 Virginia after a certain point. So um, during the American Revolution, there's a big debate about how much British common law um, continues to operate in America. Okay, but that's all this category of 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 um, common law, case law, court made law, court fashion law, judge made law. Now here's one other really big wrinkle. I told you that in Britain, there's a common law, both um, on, in civil law, torts, contracts, property, and in criminal law, murder, rape, arson, robbery, burglary, larceny. Um, and I told you that in America, um, we have common law um, both civil and criminal. there is an American there were common law arson prosecutions um, in America. But here's a key difference. After the Constitution was adopted, um, uh, a landmark ruling eventually emerged saying there is no federal common law of crimes. At the federal level, Congress has to pass the statute making something criminal. State courts are allowed to recognize, criminality even when there's no state statute for arson for murder for for rape but federal courts are not this is discussed in some detail in the new book uh the words that made us um it's connected to a a big debate about the sedition act because here's a little background in 1798 congress basically needed a crime to criticize congress john adams signed into law that statute that also made it a crime to criticize John Adams and critics said, this sucks. You know, you, you guys can, uh, incumbents can criticize challengers, but challengers can't inc- criticize incumbents. The federalists can criticize their critics, but the, the Jeffersonians, but the Jeffersonians can't criticize the federalists. Actually it's a crime to criticize the president in Congress, which is federalist controlled, but not to criticize the vice president who happens to be Jefferson Okay, they see all these rules are bogus um, and they're repressive. And one of the Federalist arguments is oh, no, these aren't repressive. These are actually um, um, uh, gentle rules because these are actually less punitive than the common law of sedition. So they're they're actually softening the common law in in certain uh, technical uh, details. Um, And the Jeffersonian response is no. The baseline in the absence of a federal statute would not be a federal common law of sedition. It would be nothing at all. There is no federal common law of crimes. Maybe on the civil side, we can have a judge-made law, but not on the criminal side. So eventually, in the election of 1800, Jefferson actually beats Adams, um, in part on the Sedition Act question. He's also helped because the Three-Fifths Clause um, add some extra seats to um, to, to, to his coalition because he mainly wins in the South. Okay, he wins, becomes president. He puts new people on the court, Supreme Court, because that's what you get to do when you're president. And eventually in a landmark decision called um, United States versus Hudson and Goodwin, announced by Jefferson's first appointee on the court, in fact, Justice Johnson, um, the court says, there is no federal common law of crime. So you can have federal common law, but not on the criminal side. You can have state common law of crimes um, and um, and state common law in in, in uh, torts and contracts and the rest. But there's no federal common law of crime. And here's why: because we're different from England. In, and so remember, it's kind of like these. You know, um, what make what English rules make sense in America? Because in, in England, there's federal. Um, common law of crime, they, excuse me, there's a common law of crime. But England isn't a federal system. England doesn't actually divide its legal regime between the central government and, and um, uh, provincial uh, and, 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 and local governments. It's all one unified system in America. What used to be basically um, British power um, is divided in America between the national government and States and um, so what America says is given that division, when it comes to putting people in prison, maybe states can do it on their own through judicial decisions, but we don't want to let federal judges do that on their own. Why? Part because they are not directly elected. Some state judges are. But also because this connects to custom. In Britain, in states, why does something become criminal? Because it's, it's customary to do so. But in America, maybe there's not actually a national custom. Things might vary from locality to locality. States should decide what violates local custom, um, but um, there is no custom of, of the nation. Relatedly, there's always an issue above and beyond whether something should be criminal, whether it should be a federal crime, as in the expression, do you want to make a federal case of it? And nothing should be a federal crime unless the federal legislature has agreed to it, um, including a body, the Senate, representing state governments as such. So um, maybe there should be criminal liability. States can handle that. But for there to be federal criminal liability, especially in the states themselves, um, a, a federal law, uh, to, that, that, for example, it's a federal crime to to kill a postmaster, a, 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 a post worker or something. Um, well, the argument would be: Why not just count on the rely on the murder laws of uh, um, common law and statutory of the relevant states? So, if you're going to create federal rules, especially if they apply, you know, within the boundaries of states, federal criminal law, actually, there should be federal legislation, and federal courts shouldn't do that on their own. Um, and and this was um, uh, crystallized this debate um, by the Sedition Act, in which the Jeffersonian said, "Listen." Um, punishing um, people who speak out against government criminally is a very dangerous business. Maybe states can do it, but the federal government shouldn't be allowed to do it until Congress actually explicitly passes a law. Now, they did pass a law, um, but don't. Um, and John Adams did sign it, but don't think that this is a liberalization in any way, because without that law, there would be no federal criminal liability for sedition. There wouldn't be a federal common law liability for sedition.
0: Very interesting. And yeah, you do cover that in depth in the, in the book and United States versus Hudson Goodwin. I don't think I've read any much about that elsewhere. So I think it's one of those things that your book uh, offers. that's fairly new. Um, yeah. If I could just put in
1: that, just a little plug. Um, uh, almost no one who teaches constitutional law writes about the uh, mainstream constitutional law writes about this, or even teaches it in a first year con law class. Um, um, it's, it's just not covered, and it's actually
0: really important. You said one thing that was interesting there, which was that part of the reason here um, for this structure is that um, it's kind of a privilege of the state legislature to pass these laws to encode local custom, and therefore it becomes state judges, state the, judges to in- incorporate local custom. Well, but you specifically mentioned that this that it's important because the Senate represents. The state legislatures, but of course that changes it with the Seventeenth Amendment. Does that cause any change in this uh, in this structure when the Seventeenth Amendment is passed, uh, which uh, gets rid of the which you know allows direct election of senators? It's a great
1: question, and there's still the democratic argument that when states, at the same time that the Senate's becoming more democratic, so are state courts. So it's one thing in a state for a state court to recognize. Um, a state uh, p- common law of crimes because they're elected. And so they're not so different than a state legislature, you see, um, but actually federal judges aren't directly elected. Um, so, so that argument and, and the argument would be no one should go to prison unless some genuinely democratic body has made a decision that this is so bad, it should be um, a crime. So there's still that argument. There's still in general, the federalism argument um, that the decision to make something not just a crime but a federal crime should basically be made democratically by the federal government itself um, and even if state legislatures are no longer elect um, uh, ch- uh, choosing the, the senate the senate does still consider itself to some extent um, a place where states rights are taken particularly seriously
0: okay so i think we've we've Given a very interesting primer to common law, and I think it's appropriate because I think it's something that most Americans don't really know very much about common law. And mo- most Americans say, "Okay, I, I read, I can read the Constitution, I know what the Constitution says, but the common law, you know, where do you read that?" So, um, so I, I think that's you know, this is a very very good service. So, all right, so that's one category of precedent, and perhaps a category that may not really uh, apply in the in the abortion debate quite as much. Um, and the next category, um, how would you define the, the next, I don't know, you want to call the next highest category of precedent? Well,
1: no, no, let's just not do higher or low, just different.
0: Um, there's a statute.
1: Um, there's a regulation. Um, but the question is, what does the statute mean? And uh, there are going to be cases about that. Um, and um, so that's um, now precedent about the meaning of a statute. So let's take um, Matthew's um, uh, example, so let's, let's imagine that there's a federal or a state, um, either way, law about automobiles, a statute, and now actually that statute gets litigated in court and the court actually interprets the statute to mean X or Y or Z. There's a regulation, it could be a state regulation, could be a federal regulation. It gets litigated and... Um, And it could be about two private individuals or between an individual and government. Um, It could be state, could be federal, but it generates litigation and the courts, this is a phrase, gloss the statute, um, interpret it, fill in its gaps, um, offer additional definitions. Now the question is, should those precedents be lightly disregarded um, in a later case? And one argument is, oh, um, we should be very cautious about um, changing statutory precedent. Here's why. Um, The legislature continues to sit. If it didn't like the interpretation, it could change that law easily. It changes laws all the time, and it does so basically relying on the judicial glosses, the judicial precedent. Let's imagine it actually um, revises the law in question and changes it in respects A, B, and C, but doesn't do anything else. In effect, hasn't the legislature, by changing it in respects A, B, and C, almost affirmatively endorsed all um, the the earlier judicial precedents glossing other parts of the statute? Uh, So the argument is courts should be especially reluctant to change the interpretations given
0: to statutes. And uh, maybe you can give an example of this. I think it Justice uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had a, uh, an important dissent that is a good de- illustration of this. One of her
1: most famous decisions um, was a dissent in a case involving Lily Ledbetter. And the question in that case was about an, a federal employment discrimination law that says you can't actually, um, if you're a major employer, uh, discriminate against women. You can't pay them less. OK, everyone agrees on that just because they're women. In Lily Ledbetter, the issue, though, was a little complicated because she was being paid less, but she didn't know it um, for a long time. Just to simplify a little bit uh, the facts of the case, let's imagine she, she just was on the day she was hired, she gets paid less than the man, let's say by 30 percent. But thereafter, every year, um, both she and the men get the same annual four percent um uh salary increase so maybe what she knows for year after year is just she's getting the same you know uh, salary increase um she it seems that other people are getting you know um but what she doesn't know is she started out at a, at a lower base just because she was a woman okay and the question the supreme court in the lily ledbetter case was um uh is it too late to complain about it a way later and the just supreme to be clear, court
0: it's not this is not a constitutional question it's a, it's based on a statute that says that the congress passed a law that says you can't discriminate employment on right. the basis of gender
1: right and and this statute actually here's another way of saying it, it's clearly not a constitutional issue it's about private employers and mm-hmm. the constitution regulates in general the government so this is just a statute um, in my terminology regulating i called it man and man but now we're talking about you know company and woman or something or and, um, and the, the statute has a whole bunch of words, and the court interprets some of them in a way that actually isn't very generous to Lily Ledbetter. And uh, uh, Ginsburg dissents, and her dissent is main, aimed mainly at the legislature saying, you should change this rule. And the legislature does change the rule going forward. Um, but here's what it doesn't do. It doesn't change all the other rules of Title Seven. So when it changes the rules about when people like Lily Ledbetter have to complain, it's actually known as the Lily Ledbetter Act, this modification of the statute. Um, and she testifies, I believe, um, uh, about it and all the rest. It's a, it's a very prominent legislative action. You could say, yes, they changed this part of the law and they made Ginsburg's dissent in effect the um, the rule going forward. But haven't they in so doing in effect um, approved all the other judicial uh, precedents, glossing other parts of that statute. Um, and so even if Ginsburg dissented in those cases, the court today shouldn't adopt Ginsburg's dissents in those cases. Cause um, even if Ginsburg was right when she said it, the legislature as actually, in effect, um, sided with um, the the Anti-Ginsburg crowd, which um, prevailed in that earlier case. So so when it comes to statutes or regulations, The argument is not absolute. The argument is stare decisis, which is Latin in effect for standing by a decision or letting the decision stand. It's Latin for precedent. Precedent should be particularly strong when there's a statute um, and the legislature continually revises the statute and in the course of revising, in effect, approves all of the judicial interpretations except the ones it chooses to change.
0: So I'm I'm just a little confused because if you said that uh, that Justice Ginsburg dissents, but the case is about interpreting what the statute says, so yes. that means that she disagrees with the interpretation of the statute, right. not that she disagrees with the statute, but right. she disagrees with the interpret. So then, why would she ask Congress to change the law if she's saying here's what it says? I disagree with what question. the rest of the court says. Brilliant says. question,
1: because she understands that in the statutory domain, once she's lost today, she's basically lost forever. Because going forward, even if um, other justices change their mind or new justices come on the court, they're going to say she was right. Too bad. So sad. It's precedent because she lost. And if, and if Congress wanted to change it, it could And in fact, it it did. But if it didn't change it, then it didn't want to change it. And so even if she was right the day she decided it, she becomes wrong thereafter because Congress, in effect, blesses by by not acting or by acting uh, on other parts of the statute, but not this one, blesses that the majority opinion, even if it was a misinterpretation. Now you see the strength of precedent, even if because. You're absolutely right, Andy. We're not long, no longer talking about judges who made the case, um, uh, who decided something with, um, earlier, and, and why can't they change their decision? We're talking now there's a statute, and the statute, you could say it means what it means, and she was right about that, so we should go back to the proper meaning. Not in statutes. In general, you say even if she was right about what the statute did mean, she lost if Congress agrees with her, they can change the statute. But if they don't change the statute, they have blessed the misinterpretation. And going forward, it's the misinterpretation that applies, um, uh, not what the statute, quote, really, unquote, means, because um, um, uh, her dissent was right the day it was handed down. But
0: too bad, so sad. So I think this is something to keep in mind as we go forward and look at the at uh, precedents based on the Constitution. Um, It it, it is, and that is
1: going to be arguably a difference here. Let me just um, on on statutes say one or two other things. Um, There are some statutes um, that are so um, vague, so short, and so rarely modified by the legislature Um, that in effect, all the rules are basically created um, by judges purporting to gloss them and and interpret them, but really coming up with all the rules. The classic example is the Sherman Antitrust Statute of 1890. It's just a few sentences. It says, you know, no conspiracies and restraint of trade, but from a certain point of view, all contracts restrain trade from it to a certain extent. And so um, the court generated all sorts of rules about what was and wasn't a violation of the antitrust laws. And there's not a lot of statutory text. There's just a lot of judicial gloss. It's almost like a pure common law field. You see, the statute recedes into the backdrop. And and the judges, in case after case, are just debating what the uh, earlier cases said, rather than what the statute, quote, really, unquote, says. In that domain, the court actually has been a little bit more willing to rethink precedents because Congress almost never actually um, modifies the statute. If the court goofed, Congress actually in this area isn't um, going to fix it. So the only per- the only folks who can would be the courts themselves. And and they're the ones who goofed. So they should be able to fix the goop. And that's the, the modern, you see, understanding of, of common law precedent. It was judge made, so why can't the judges change it, but, you know, what, what they made? Um, uh, and, uh, but, but now in the second domain, you're, you're seeing in general, no, it's a, it's a different approach that, that applies in general, even if that, the dissent was right about what the statute really means the day after that decision, in effect, the legislature by its inaction um, has blessed the incorrect interpretation, especially if the legislature is tweaking the statute going forward in all sorts of other ways and not fixing the um, uh, earlier claimed misinterpretation.
0: Um, I guess we're getting a little of that with the Voting Rights Act, right, that people keep saying Congress should modify the Voting Rights Act because uh, the court interpreted it in the um, Shelby County case a certain way. Well, and
1: Now, Shelby County is a little tricky because the court didn't merely purport to interpret the Voting Rights Act, but actually invalidated parts of it because of the Constitution, which is a beautiful segue, Andy, now to the third category, which is constitutional precedent, which is um, now, you're beginning to see, audiences begin to see rather different. Um, because uh, I believe that courts should feel more free to, cor- to correct mistaken precedents in the constitutional domain uh, than in the other two. Why? Because here, the legislature actually can't always merely correct uh, a misinterpretation. Uh, um, because they misconstrued the court in this hypothetical has misconstrued the constitution itself. And um, yes, you can have a constitutional amendment, but that's only there have only been four times in American history where Congress has been able to um, muster uh, uh, enough votes, two thirds of the house, two thirds, the Senate and three quarters, the States um, ratifying the thing to overturn a judicial interpretation one was a case called Chisholm versus Georgia about whether states could be held liable in damages in certain situations and, and the court and it could be sued in, in federal court in certain situations and Congress responded with a proposed amendment that became the 11th amendment to the Constitution in the early era 1790s. A second was Dred Scott said blacks can't be citizens even if born free even if they're uh, father was born free even if their grandfather was born free and and voted for the constitution in in massachusetts and fought at bunker hill as as some blacks did or at lexington Concord. dred scott said blacks even if free can never be citizens the first sentence of the 14th amendment dred scott was 1857 first sentence of the 14th amendment the 1860s says oh they can be a court the court in the 1890s said a federal income tax was unconstitutional and congress in uh Then 1910 said, "Oh no, um, we believe in a federal income tax. That's the 16th Amendment." And then, in around 1970, the court said Congress, by a statute, can't give 18-year-olds the vote in state elections, and so the Constitution was amended to allow 18 and 19 and 20-year-old Americans to to vote. So those only four times in American history have have constitutional rulings by the court been, been undone. And so here's the argument that, that someone like um, yours truly would make. And there are people on the other side. I would say the Constitution says it is the supreme law of the land. And if the court has misinterpreted it and today's court is convinced of that, it should undo the misinterpretation and go back to what the supreme law of the land really said and meant. And Congress merely by not passing a statute or by passing other statutes hasn't blessed um, in, in any sort of proper way the Supreme Court misinterpretation, because um, it's a misinterpretation of the Constitution and not of a, of a federal statute. And it's very hard for Congress to actually amend the Constitution. And so if courts don't correct their own mistakes, who will? And that's The strong argument why in this domain, you could say, well, um, common law should change very, very slowly and gradually. In the statutory domain, uh, the legislature has blessed it. But here, you're not changing the law. You're just simply going back to the correct interpretation of what the law, that is the Constitution, rightly read, always meant. You're just undoing your misinterpretation and I'll and, and now that's the argument from first principles I'll now give you some precedent based reasons for being willing if a precedent is really really you know clearly wrong overturning it because on at least seven occasions in the 20th century the Supreme Court itself, Basically, overturned precedence in some cases sort of radically changed um, uh, approach simply because the earlier case or line of cases were seen as wrongly decided. Now, the audience might think, oh, yeah, that's Brown versus Board of Education, which in effect, the audience might think overruled Plessy versus Ferguson. And and here's the, 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 the tension the Constitution says equal, it really does. And Plessy actually winked at that. It didn't take it seriously. And so Brown now had a tough decision. Was it going to go with the case law? Plessy basically saying separate is okay. Um, Or was it going to actually say no equal means equal? And the audience might think, oh, well, Brown very famously overturns Plessy, goes with the true meaning of the Constitution, equal means equal. Now, in fact, Brown didn't quite do that. You won't find... In Brown, the sentences Plessy was wrongly decided. Um, Plessy was wrongly decided the day it was decided. You won't find anything like that. Instead, what Brown does is say Plessy involved a slightly different issue. Uh, we lawyers call that distinguishing a case. The court in Brown said, oh, Plessy involved transportation, railroads. The case at hand involves education. We this is a, almost a direct quote. We hold that in the field of public education, the doctrine, the Plessy doctrine of separate but equal, has no place. So they didn't overturn Plessy. They just actually um, distinguished it. But in fact, we today understand that Brown isn't just a case about education. Segregation education is about segregation everywhere. And we understand Brown to basically say equal means equal. Equal is a word that appears in the 14th Amendment. It says no state can deny any person the equal protection of the laws. It's also a concept that's very strongly implicit earlier in the amendment, which says everyone born in the United States is born a citizen. That is born an equal citizen. We're all born equal. We're all created equal to hark back to the language of the declaration of independence. Many, many state constitutions on the books in the revolution uh, at the revolution, time of the revolution in the 1770s. And in the 1860s, when the 14th amendment was adopted said expressly m- more than half the states had laws on the books saying all persons are born free and equal. So, So that idea is implicit in the first sentence of the 14th amendment. The birth equality idea is in the word equal appears in the companion civil rights act of 1866, which is a congressional law going that that's a companion to the 14th amendment. You earlier mentioned the privileges and immunities of citizens. Well, one of their key privileges is an idea of racial equality. And then there's the equal protection clause. So all told, I think the Constitution really does affirm racial equality. There are other reasons as well. Plessy was wrong, in my view, it was wrong the day it was decided. It winked at all of this stuff. But Brown at the time didn't quite say that. It just said Plessy was about transportation, and this case is about the case today is about education. But we now read Brown as if it said Plessy was wrong the day it was decided, no Jim Crow, no segregation in transportation, in railroads or buses, but also not in education, not in beaches, not in golf courses, not in marriage laws. You can't, for example, prohibit interracial marriages. That's how we today read Brown through the prism of later cases. But Brown at the time didn't quite formally overrule Plessy, but there have been landmark decisions of the Supreme Court that simply overruled earlier cases, disregarded them, broke and broke sharply not gradually, not incrementally, not in a common law fashion, but sharply with precedent simply on the theory that the precedent was wrong, the Constitution says what it says and means what it means, and the earlier judicial inter- um, uh, case simply got it wrong. Here are two or three that our audience will, will have heard about. Perhaps the most famous that uh, just to an ordinary person, is the West Virginia versus Barnett case from 1943 in which the court said that a state can't basically uh, require students to salute the flag. That's a violation of free speech principles to force people to, to, to pledge allegiance to a flag, to express a kind of political allegiance and opinion. And today, that's rock solid. It's, it's 9-0 on today's Supreme Court. It's a landmark decision. Everyone applauds it. But it overruled a case only t- decided only two years earlier called Gobitis, in which the court had upheld the flags of the case. And what Barnett does is simply say Gobitis was wrong, bye-bye, and it's just a pure overruling in the name of the correct reading of the Constitution. Um, in that case, free speech principles as applied to state and local governments thanks to the 14th amendment. So the first amendment and in effect incorporation of of some of these first amendment principles against states. That's the most famous case, but I can give you several others. One which is a very technical case actually called Erie versus Tompkins, it's about federal common law um, and um, and it overrules a landmark opinion from a century earlier called Swift versus Tyson. It's not a case that everyone in the audience has heard of, but I promise Everyone in the audience who ever went to law school has heard of Erie versus Tompkins because everyone learns that in first semester procedure class. It's one of the landmark cases of all time in the
0: American legal tradition. Now, you said when you were talking about the second category of precedent that if the court glosses a statute in a particular way and Congress disagrees, then it can, you know, and and feels that that's wrong, it can modify the statute Um, and that. It's a little different in the case of the Constitution because it's difficult to modify the Constitution. But so that the, the way that the court can indicate its disagreement with an earlier uh, precedent is by overruling it. But um, so with the it seems to me that if you're giving credence to Congress, Congress's failure to overrule a statute – um, and saying, that, well, that, or rather, a judgment by the court regarding the statute. And you're saying, okay, if Congress doesn't overrule the court's interpretation of a statute, that gives credence to that interpretation. Then in the case of Brown, why is it that Brown's failure to overrule Plessy, in other words, to say, to distinguish itself from Plessy, why doesn't that, sort of by analogy or extension, Give credence to Plessy in the transportation area. They're, they're, you know, they're going out of their way to not overrule it. It seems to me that would be the the analog to Congress not overruling or not passing a new statute. Okay, so first, remember, it's not
1: just that Congress doesn't pass um, a, a, a statute correcting the judicial statutory misinterpretation; it's that Congress often is at the same time passing other laws um, and sometimes even modifying this very same statute in other ways. So it's it's, so it's it's actually um, not merely doing nothing. It's arguably by its affirmative actions uh, blessing certain uh, judicial uh, rulings, even if you could say they were misinterpretations at the time. They've 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 now been been blessed by statutory intervention. Now, what the court did in Brown wasn't so much to bless Plessy as simply not to overrule it. It didn't go out of its way to say Plessy was rightly decided at the time. It says, in effect, we don't need to decide that. It is enough for today's decision to basically say that was a different issue. Everyone at the time actually, I think, properly read Plessy, I assume Brown as moving away from Plessy. And in fact, and this was a problem with Brown, the next year, the Supreme court in a whole bunch of one sentence per curiam opinions without any reasoning at all, often without even oral argument overruled or struck down Jim Crow laws outside the domain of education. Brown said education, education, education. And the court said, Oh, no segregation in public beaches. I just say two sentences: no segregation in public beaches. Period. Brown. Period. But Brown didn't say anything about public beaches. No segregation in public golf courses. Period. Brown. And then another one. This is this is all 1955. Brown is 1954. No segregation in public buses. Brown buses is the domain of transportation. That's the domain of Plessy versus Ferguson. So so pretty early after Brown it became clear that the court actually was moving very sharply to overrule Plessy. But they didn't do so in the most clean and articulate and emphatic It's
0: pretty way. messy. I mean, have, have they ever, you know, sort of cleaned it up?
1: Today, it's pretty clear. Yes, the court has said on various occasions, including in an abortion case called Casey, that Brown... In effect, they say overruled Plessy and that Plessy was wrong the day it was decided. So you will see in modern cases uh, in the last 20 years, the sentence Plessy was not just that Plessy was wrong, but Plessy was wrong the day it was decided. Now, I'm going to introduce a couple of of, of more concepts here. Now, thus far, I've been giving the audience one way to think about constitutional precedent fundamentalist way, the originalist way, Um, and I'll say a little bit more about it, but it's not the only way. Um, My friend Elena Kagan believes much more strongly in precedent and its weight in constitutional cases than do I, and we're going to see that play out in a very big way in December in the Mississippi abortion case. She's going to want to place a lot more emphasis on Roe, whether or not it's right simply because it's precedent, and I've just said, gee, um, I get that when it comes to a statute because the legislature has, even if the, the judicial interpretation of the statute was wrong, the legislature has now affirmatively blessed it. I can even see in the, the common law area, if you're a traditionalist, you say, oh, judges should go very slowly and incrementally and should give a lot of weight to the earlier judicial precedent. But I say here, it's totally different because we're not dealing with common law, judicial incrementalism. We're not dealing with the statute. We're dealing with the constitution. And if the court got the constitution wrong in case one, they should fix it in case two, because we're not dealing with judge made law. We're dealing with what the people actually really did say in the constitution. And we're not dealing with a legislature that can easily change it. And I've made a couple of arguments. First, I've said the constitution itself says it's the supreme law of the land, not precedent. That's the supremacy clause. Now, from a certain point of view, that's circular. I'm saying the text trumps because the text itself says so. But at least it's not contradictory. Yes, I'm appealing to the text to establish the primary primacy of the text. So that's one argument I've made. I just made another kind of big argument: the text came from the people. I made a democracy argument, um, and it shouldn't be changed unless the people themselves amend it. And and they haven't. Um, and 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 merely by inaction, they haven't blessed what the court has done so if the court misinterpreted what we the people really did say it should go back to what we the people really did say and and if we want to change it we can amend it ourselves but the courts shouldn't do that on their own so that's an argument from democracy another uh, argument would just be standard garden variety judicial review courts all the time say well congress passed a statute But the statute's inconsistent with the Constitution. The Constitution should trump a statute. So we go with the Constitution. Well... Same logic, right back action, my friends on the court. If the so, if the legislature gets it wrong, you invalidate what the legislature has done. That's judicial review. But if the court has gotten it wrong in an earlier case, you should invalidate that. If the Constitution is superior to a statute, it's also superior to the judiciary. And so, the very deep principles of Marbury versus Madison of constitutional supremacy apply here as well. Now, I've made another argument. Okay, those are arguments. Of an originalist kind of sort, text history and structure, sort of uh, fundamentalism. But I made a different argument. Precedent itself authorizes the overruling of uh, an earlier precedent merely because it was wrong the day it was decided. Barnett did that to Gobitis, Erie did that to Swift versus Tyson. There are five other. Cases in the 20th century alone that, um, that did that. Um, and if you want the, the, those cases, you can um, read um, my chapter in a book called America's Unwritten Constitution. The chapter is called Precedent's Proper Place. And I'll come back to that in just a, a minute. Now, does that mean that precedent has no weight at all in Amar's world? On the contrary. There are all sorts of things that we haven't yet begun to talk about where even in the constitutional domain, we have to talk about reliance interests, which are important. We have to talk about precedent in in lower courts, which is actually um, a a different set of issues than precedent in the Supreme Court itself. We have to talk about how precedents actually could carry a certain kind of, of weight, just as even if at the end of the day, the Constitution trumps a contrary precedent, how the burden of proof might need to be on the, um, those who think the present is wrong. You you start basically by following the present, unless you're really pretty clear, pretty sure that the present is wrongly decided you, you so present might be a starting point, a default rule, even if at the end of the day, the constitution, if contrary prevails, present might even be a, a kind of a weight of sorts. Gee, you know, it seems to me that this, precedent is in violation of the Constitution. On the other hand, the precedent came from a very respected court. Um, It was an opinion by a very respected uh, judge. Maybe I'm wrong today in thinking the precedent was wrong. I should actually give some weight epistemically to the precedent because maybe actually I'm wrong in thinking the precedent is wrong. Okay, so, so precedent could still have a lot of authority, even if at the end of the day, you believe with me that if the precedent is clearly in violation of the Constitution, that's a pretty good argument for following the Constitution itself. Uh, again, we're going to have to talk about whether reliance is an important counterweight and how to think about reliance and where the Constitution itself
0: authorizes reliance. So I think that now we've given a, an outline of your sort of primer on precedent, and uh, our next tasks will be to refine it in these manners that you said to contrast it with uh, Justice Kagan's view of precedent, and then to throw all this into the uh, the abortion hopper and see right. and see what uh, what how it grinds it up. And, right. uh, and but, but no one's really interested in the abortion case, right? right? <laughs> <laughs> and so, we're, you know, I think this is a little different because we're doing it in advance of the oral argument. So then I think we'll have an opportunity later to see what happens in oral argument and so forth.
1: Oh, and our audience will really be able now to understand what the justices in, in the oral argument, what, you know, what the debate really is about, because it's going to be about two things. It's going to be about abortion. But, oh, I promise you, it's also going to be about
0: precedent. And I think we should also then, uh, as we continue this next week, we should review the pre- the precedents themselves and just uh, briefly uh, in this case. And, what uh, they so, actually said. Right. So Casey and, and progeny. So um, great. So th- I think this is a, a good dividing point and I knew there was no way we were going to finish this in one episode. So you, you warned don't... me about that because yeah. I go on and on and on. Well, no, because it's, uh, because it's a fascinating topic. Um, and, it, you know, uh, again, t- it took us in all different directions. So, so next week, uh, we get into the nitty-gritty, just as we did with the gun case. And in the meantime, uh, happy Thanksgiving and, uh, to, to everyone. And there's a lot to be thankful for. And Akhil, I'm thankful for, for you and for the opportunity to speak to you every week. I think our, our audience are all very, very jealous of me. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. I'm looking forward to seeing you on Thanksgiving and
1: um, not just thanking the good Lord, but but, but thanking you for, for everything you, um, uh, all your friendship. Till then.